The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. This podcast may contain graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and assault, including rape. These accounts can be triggering, especially for those who have also experienced sexual trauma. If at any point during this podcast, you feel yourself getting triggered, we suggest taking a break and taking care of yourself before continuing. But we do ask that you continue if you are able. These conversations can be mentally and emotionally taxing, but they are so important to have. We are here with our guest, Veronica Dihar. Veronica, would you like to give us a little bit of information about yourself and introduce yourself to us and kind of how you got into music in the first place? Absolutely. So, hi, I'm Veronica. Most people know me by Vero. What's up? I am one of the head bitches in charge of Camp Punksylvania and Riot Squad Media. Um, but I specifically got into music when I was really, really young. My dad had us listen to everything from Metallica to Mozart, like, He's a multi-instrumentalist. I started playing violin at age seven. I play violin, saxophone. I was in a lot of jazz bands, things like that. Specifically with punk music, I got into the scene in 2021. Before that, I had been traveling a lot, and then I didn't really get to integrate myself in a community like this one or into a scene, really. So I listened to punk music on my own, but I wasn't a part of the Pennsylvania scene or the East Coast scene or anything. But then I met Laura. <laughs> And they had already, um, she and Terry had already started working on Camp Punksylvania. Laura and I met at an underpass in Philadelphia at a show at a skate park next to a literal pile of human shit. It was amazing. <laughs> she had been drinking a little bit and she was like, ah, it's one of my friend's birthdays. I have to go give them cupcakes in the pit. Here's this fanny pack full of cash. Take care of our merch. And I'm like, I met you half an hour ago, but okay. <laughs> and we've been best friends ever since. And now I'm one of the head bitches in charge, which was really nice. But that's how I got into the scene and into music in general. <laughs> that's such a fun story of like being integrated in the punk scene. It's just like, you're cool. Um, I'm going to put you in charge of something. I've never met you, but you seem pretty awesome. So uh, do this. I'll be back. Yeah, it feels very fitting for the punk scene. Um, she knew me a little bit because my partner is one of the people on the production crew at camp. He's um, the assistant stage manager. So I've been like in the background of meetings, handing him food and stuff. But that was kind of the extent of it until that day. So you're relatively new to this whole world of, let's say, American <laughs> of the punk rock scene, because it is just such a international spiderwebbed, ever reaching kind of thing. And everyone has their own like sex and scenes. And so we, Rich and I and some of the guests, have been in this for a lot longer and are jaded and old and tired and mad about everything. Do you feel jaded and old and tired and mad about anything yet? Or is that just an us thing? I mean, I feel jaded and old and tired of everything in this life, dude. But specifically with the punk scene, like we see like things like the anti-flag scandal that go down and different artists, not only in the punk scene, but like now Lizzo has something against her. And I don't know if it's jaded, I don't know if it's tired, I don't know if it's old, but I'm just not surprised anymore. No matter what somebody says on the outside or whatever they portray publicly, I'm not surprised if something comes out because it seems like it's everywhere. 
you know? So, kind of. <laughs> Kendra and I talk about this a lot on the podcast via text messages, via emails. Anytime something comes up about anyone, we're far past the point of like, oh my God, I never would have like expected that. It's just like, yep. Yeah. Okay. Not surprised anymore. Right. And I think that actually really speaks to how we need to go about creating safer communities. And again, this is something that we'll probably dive into in a little bit. But whenever we talk about perpetrators of sexual or domestic violence, our tendency is to be like, oh, that person's a monster. They would have done this no matter what. But the reality is, it's really easy to say that. And it feels really good because that takes any sort of blame away from the community that they're surrounded by and away from the society that they're surrounded by. People that commit these kinds of heinous acts don't do so in a vacuum, you know? So I think the fact that we're not surprised anymore speaks to the fact that we need to find ways to create safer communities by being safe for, I don't want to say everybody because I'm not being sympathetic, but we need to find ways to prevent this violence before it even occurs, you know? 100%, yeah. One aspect that I think about a lot, and I don't know if this is even something I should be like ruminating on, is the like generational age differences between the different sects of punk musicians, I guess, or just people involved. You know, there's always the joke of like the 55 year old like white dude who like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just give everyone a pass. It's cool. Why is no one stabbing each other? Punk rock dead. It's not even dangerous anymore. And then you're like, okay, whatever, roll your eyes. And everyone's talking. And he's like mocking safer spaces and people's pronouns and shit. And then there's like the new version where it's like the littles, the littlest of littles that are like in their teens or maybe even their early 20s. And it's just a, such a different world. There's this weird kind of pass that we give certain people of certain ages in music in general. We're like, oh, the 80s, you know how it was. And they did these things, you know, either at that time or they have the mentality that still stuck. 40 years later of that time, so they seem to get a pass for certain things, which always just kind of irks me. Specifically talking about things like that, this is something that I came, not came up with because it has a lot to do with like restorative justice and transformative justice as well. But one of the kind of terms that I coined while I was working in advocacy is compassionate condemnation, right? You condemn the act, you condemn the mindset, but you also recognize that the person that has that mindset is a whole ass human. And you're not going to be able to say, hey, you're a piece of shit and have them listen to you. We need to be able to recognize where these thought patterns are coming from, where these behaviors are coming from, see where that kind of stems from and where it began and kind of work our way backwards so that the end goal can be a safer community and not just, hey, you're a piece of shit, period. Do better, you know, because that's very shallow in some ways. Does that make sense? It's kind of. Along the same line, something that I had talked to a friend of mine who's also a former guest about was taking a look at people who have perpetrated harm or things like that, where that comes from. Were they groomed as a young person coming up in the scene? Because that happens a lot. There's like the older, now like grandfathers of whatever scene it could be, punk rock, hip hop, whatever who take these like younger artists under their wings and show them the ropes. And sometimes it's, hey, you can get away with this shit because of X, Y, Z. Sometimes people have trauma that happened to them in their lives. Sometimes people are just, they just do awful things. So 
part of this conversation is, you know, like getting to the root of where some of this stuff comes from. Absolutely. And one of the things that I talked about again a lot when I was working in advocacy was we have a lot of resources for survivors as we need to, because that's a very important thing to have when someone goes through sexual assault, when somebody goes through domestic violence, or honestly, just any sort of sex or gender based violence. You recognize that you're going to feel isolated. It doesn't feel like anybody in the world has ever felt this way. But yeah, after that, it, you have to have someone helping you along those steps because you don't know what the fuck to do. We have not as many as we should, but we do have some resources for survivors, families and friends and loved ones to help them through that process and also deal with the vicarious trauma that they might be going through, which is something that I'm working on that we'll talk about later. But what we don't have is a real path to a safer society. At this point, not even 1% of perpetrators are even taken to prison or convicted or arrested or anything like that. Clearly, it's not working. Even the ones that are convicted. Our prison system sucks, dude. People that end up going to prison are much more likely to reoffend. It doesn't actually do anything to create a safer society. So what we need to do is find a way to burn it down, burn it down, burn it all fucking down to the ground. <laughs> Make it so that people that are assigned male at birth and people that do identify as masculine are able to express their emotions and are able to not have everything pent up. Because when you don't know how to express your emotions, when you stuff everything down, you don't have any healthy coping mechanisms, that's when you get violent. And that's when you're like, hey, this is somebody that I want power over because I need power over something in my fucking life. So I'm going to take out all of my emotions on this person. And that's shitty. But sending them to prison might not stop that behavior. So we need to find ways to dismantle the systems that lead to this behavior in the first place. And that's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. So we need to find ways to transition into that kind of society, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you had mentioned that they get violent and, you know, would end up in the system. I think it's also a good point that it doesn't have to be physical violence. You can have someone just go after you mentally, emotionally, just gaslight the shit out of you. And then you're stuck kind of reel through your own version of reality. And then you end up having to go through your own version of healing and dealing with things and trying not to, you know, bleed your wounds on other people. The cycle of abuse is so real, both within one relationship and within just somebody's lifetime. If somebody had power taken away from them as a kid, they're going to seek ways to find that power in adulthood. And it could be, and I'm not saying that everybody that was abused is going to go on to abuse people, but there is a pattern where people that are abusers had that type of violence in their past. And talking about emotional abuse and manipulation and gaslighting, not only in romantic relationships or familial relationships, but like you were saying, people can get groomed in the music industry, right? People can get groomed in any industry. And the survivors that I talk to, and even in myself, sometimes a bruise goes away. But once you start questioning your reality, it takes so much that back. I don't know. I'm just a person with some thoughts. <laughs> well, and it's, you know, it's also one of the things we talk about is trauma looks different for each survivor. Not everyone processes or goes through things the exact same way. As many different people, there's as many different ways that you're going to handle your trauma. 
And it's sort of the same way with perpetrators, like not every perpetrator looks the same. There's always that myth about the stranger who's going to drag you into a dark alley, which while that does happen, it's not as common as, you know, it's going to probably be someone that you know, or someone that you're close to that is the perpetrator. Absolutely. As many perpetrators as there are, there's a different ways to be a perpetrator. And there is no surefire way to know like, hey, you're going to be a shithead when you're older, right? Because that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. So the way we need to go about this is making sure that people know what consent is, first of all, because that's not clear as we're taught growing up. I have a very fun way to remember, and you can thank Planned Parenthood for it. Consent rights. They are my favorite thing in the world. It's a little acronym. So consent needs to be F, freely given. That means there's no power dynamic, so it can't be like a boss to an employee, a coach to a player, a professor to a student, anything like that. Two, consent needs to be R, reversible. So if the three of us are on our way to Wendy's because I want to get some fries, and I love Wendy's fries and they're the greatest thing in the world, but on the way there, my stomach starts hurting and I puke in the car, I have to be able to be like, Rich, I don't want to go anymore. I don't feel good. <laughs> and you have to turn that car around because I am no longer consenting to going to get fries at Wendy's. Right? Same thing goes for sex. If we start an activity and things are getting fun and we're having a good time and then I'm like, either I got triggered by something or I just don't want to do this anymore, you need to stop. And that needs to be okay. Consent needs to be informed. Right? So in a sexual context, this can look like whether or not somebody's on birth control whether or not a condom is being used, if there's a hole in the condom, whether a condom was removed. It can also look like STD and STI status because that might affect my decision to have sex with someone if I know that I might contract an STD or an STI or whether or not a barrier method is used. Also, this can look like whether or not there are multiple partners involved, not only in that act, but in general. If that is a thing and somebody is polyamorous and they want to have multiple partners, amazing. Go have fun. That's great for you. I'm so happy. But that needs to be no because that can increase the chances of STI or STD transmission. So we want to make sure that everything is known and everything is informed. E, enthusiastic. If I say something like, oh my God, yes, that sounds amazing. Let's go fucking do that right now. That is so different than if I would be like, sure. Let's go. Because in the second scenario, like I might be feeling some sort of pressure. I might, there might be a power dynamic. I might feel like I'm going to get fired if I don't say yes, or just any other number of reasons. So we want to make sure that that is an enthusiastic yes. And S, consent needs to be specific. So just because I'm cool with taking off my shirt does not mean I'm okay with taking off my pants. Consent fries is my favorite thing in the world. And it's also just a really easy way to explain what's going on, to explain what consent actually looks like in the moment. I had actually learned that, and that made me think of the other really good consent, um, the T YouTube video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that one is great also. It is great. I have a fucked up story about that. <laughs> oh, do tell. So I graduated college in 2020. I am a little bitty baby. 
But when we were doing our college orientation, it's called Pops Weekend for the sexual assault talks, they separated the femme presenting people from the masculine people. And we got this whole long talk that ended up in a really fucked up way. And the guys or the masculine people were shown the T video and let go. And I was like, this is not how this is supposed to work, besties. You need to do a little bit better of a job. Just watch this three minute video and then you're good. That reminds me of when I was in fifth grade and I went through uh, a private school and they had to have like the talk with us. It wasn't the sex talk, but it was the like, your hormones are happening inside of you right now, like kind of shit. And we had the science teacher do it. And they also passed out little like baggies of like secret deodorant and like a tampon and then a little like thing that showed you like what the inside of your body looked like and the guys got different stuff they had i think like an old spice deodorant and i don't know what else they got and we had an hour plus where we had to sit there and watch slides about like what tampons were how periods work how mammograms are and like that's not something you really need to be worrying about when you are in fifth grade and the guys again like i don't know what they saw they had another science teacher who was also a woman they had a slideshow. They were done in about 15 to 20 minutes. And we were in there for over an hour watching videos of like babies crowning and shit. It was absolute horror. And they had to like get to, they got to go out to recess. We could see them through the windows. <laughs> Two things with that. First of all, ew. Same. I went to public school and like for my high school health teacher, I sat next to a poster that was 100 things to do other than having sex. But now all I want to do is have sex. None of those other hundred things. <laughs> I have a teenager. I have thoughts and hormones. Uh, but the second thing is that demonstrates a big issue in our society and another issue why perpetrators become perpetrators. People don't understand what the female body is or how to approach someone with that body type. But the fact that we end up separating male or as i'm sure these schools would refer to it boys from girls such a young age and give them wildly contrasting information or wildly different depths of information speaks to the problem that we have right we need to make sure that everyone is getting similar education not only on our bodies but also what consent is what a healthy relationship can look like when i was working in advocacy i started well when i was working with the advocacy agency here in the united states I started as a community educator, and one of my responsibilities as a community educator before I moved to medical was teaching 800 to 1,000 children a week. It was a curriculum on how to have a healthy relationship, and we had a curriculum from preschool to college age. So specifically, my responsibility was fifth graders to eighth graders, wide age range. But we would go over things with all of them, like what empathy is how to cope with big emotions and big feelings that you might have. And I still use that language when I'm talking about big emotions. With our eighth graders, we went into what sexual abuse is and what that can look like. There was a day where I had nine disclosures of child abuse because of what we were teaching. And they were like, oh, shit, this is happening to me. And I'm like, I got you, you. Let's figure this out. But we would go over all of those things and... By the end of it, the kids, of course, they're going home and they're seeing contrasting information. And one eight-week course is not going to change. Well, it could change somebody's life, but it's if they're having all the other information given to them as well, it's a grain of sand on the beach. But it's a grain of sand. And it does help, like I said, some kids come forward if something's going on at home 
or it helps set them up for a better relationships in the future, which is really what we need to be doing with all of our kids and making sure that everyone understands that a relationship is supposed to feel safe at home and sometimes a little boring if you've been in abusive or toxic relationships before, right? It's like a healthy relationship is throwing a pebble in a pond after you've been on a roller coaster. When you are in a toxic relationship or an unhealthy or an abusive relationship, it starts off amazing, right? Have you guys heard of the term love bombing? Oh, I've been a subject of love bombing, bestie. Um, I figured, but for the folks at home, love bombing is where you start a new relationship or you meet somebody new and they go to you and they're like, oh my God, you're the most beautiful person in the world. Here's all of these gifts. Here's all of this chocolate. I'm going to take you to all of these exotic places because you deserve it. And I love you so, 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 so much. And I've known you for two weeks. And you're like, I do deserve it. (laughs) I really want to deserve it. I think I deserve it. Maybe do I deserve it? I love exotic locations. I mean, maybe you do, but you don't deserve it after two weeks because that doesn't end anywhere good. (laughs) So you see this really, really high, high, right? And then tension starts to build. Instead of, oh my God, you're so beautiful. It's, oh, well, you'd be much prettier if you wore different makeup. And then that escalates to, oh, you've gained some weight since we started dating and you just, I'm not attracted to you anymore. You need to do something about that. And the tension builds and builds and builds until there's an explosive phase, right? And that can be a verbal attack, an emotional attack, a sexual attack, or a physical attack. And it bottoms out and you're like, shit. But you remember all of those really, really good times and all of that dopamine and oxytocin that your brain had. And that contrasted with all of this cortisol and all of these stress hormones can get a little, not addicting, but it's a little addicting. And then when you're in that bottoming out, the person that's the perpetrator is going to be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, because they might actually feel remorse. They might actually love you. That doesn't matter. <laughs> you don't deserve to be treated like that. But they'll apologize and then it'll, it'll get back to that honeymoon phase for a little bit and you're back to the love bombing and things are great until they're not right and it'll continue on that pattern until you leave or until you end up seeing somebody like me in the hospital and the other thing with all of that is when you're in it you don't even realize what's happening because it's so gradual and it's all normalized that like you said, until, you know, almost until it's too late, then you're like, oh, shit. It's like that metaphor with the lobsters boiling to death in the pot with the hot water. You don't even realize what's happening because it's just slowly getting warmer. And you're like, I don't notice it. It's okay. It's running a little hot. No big deal. It's a little toasty. I'm getting a little red. Yeah. And that's also why we were talking a little bit earlier how we need to have resources for the people that are supporting survivors, right? Because first of all, vicarious trauma is a very real thing. So we need to be able to help people deal with that and recognize that that's a valid thing to go through. But also, when somebody sees this cycle of, oh, things are great, things are shitty, things are great, things are shitty, you're going to encourage them to leave, right? And how many times do you think it takes someone to leave an abusive relationship before it finally sticks? Took me two years. Okay. 
two full years of back and forth and consistent shit and bottles thrown at my head and drunken streaming matches and love bombing and roses on my car and it'll be okay and I was just drunk and you were wasted and you were blacked out and you did all these things wrong and I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, no, wait, I did everything wrong. It took a really long time. I don't even know how many actual fights there were like every week. So on average, it takes seven times for someone to leave an abuser before it actually sticks. I was going to say five. So yeah, I'm here at like 74. I'm like, <laughs> oh, me, 74. In wild <laughs> um, Mine wasn't physical abuse. It was more like that whole four years is a weird blur in my mind. Because <laughs> there's a lot of manipulation and a lot of weird shit. But... Yeah, it takes seven times for somebody to leave an abuser before it actually sticks. And the two weeks after you make that decision and you leave are the most dangerous. Um, the first guy that raped me has been threatening my life since March. This year? Yeah, this year. So it's been a great time. Um, yeah, we... Um, a slight tangent. There was this issue at camp where people on Sunday were not being ID'd when they were coming in. It really early in the morning because there was another event going on at the same time. And I was going around making sure that all of our people were okay, but I was also having a fucking panic attack because I thought he would have been there. Oh my gosh, how scary. It was a bad time. I had very good people. Laura was like, this is the best place for you because if he comes here, he's not leaving. If he's leaving, it's in a body bag. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. But (laughs) that two weeks being the most dangerous, I actually got a sexual violence protection order against him back in the middle of March. And I, that time, also had a panic attack. And I was sitting on this couch right here for two hours crying because I thought he was actually going to come kill me. Because that's when that's most likely to happen. So when we're talking to people that are supporting the survivors and that surrounding community and the support networks, We need to remind ourselves, we need to remind our entire community that you cannot get frustrated when somebody doesn't leave. All you can do is make sure that they know that you're there for them. And if they push you away, that's a symptom of the abuse too. When you see someone going through that, you know, sometimes you just want to shake them and be like, oh my God, what are you doing? But like you said, it doesn't happen overnight. And you can't just be like, well, I told you, fuck you, like, don't come crying to me next time this happens. You have to have that compassion and understand that you can't just turn that switch off and be like, okay, yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm out, and then be out for good. That's not how it works. Why? Unless you know that it takes someone two years or seven tries to actually leave their abuser, you're just going to be like, well, I tried. When in reality, like... There are people that can't go to the police, whether that be because, first of all, ACAB, second of all, immigration issues, right? A lot of people will stay with their abuser because their abuser will take their documents or they are undocumented or they were brought to this country illegally, no matter what the reason. Going to an agency or going to a governmental institution like the police instills a lot of fear and they feel like they can't get help. I will say that a lot of agencies and the one that I used to work for, I have a lot of issues with them. But one of the things that they did well is when you stayed in the safe house, you weren't there. We cannot confirm or deny that we've ever had any contact with this person. Also, we had um, like a system 
that we had to log people in because like we have to. And every single person check U.S. citizen because in case we are ever subpoenaed, we don't want that ever going back on them and we don't ask. But that's one reason why somebody might stay. They might have kids. They might have pets where if they leave, they might not be able to take their kids or their pets. And then that abuse, well, the abuser doesn't have power over you anymore. So who are they going to turn it to? Personally, I would rather be the survivor or the victim of something than a kid, you know, especially if it's my kid, which like I don't have, but hypothetical. And so when we are trying to support somebody going through this, we need to make sure that we are being cognizant of those reasons and looking at their situation and recognizing that we might not have all the information. So the best thing we can do is be there, remind them that they deserve better than that, help show them love help show them how to love themselves again and be there when they're ready to leave. Can you give us a little bit of information about your background of how you came to be so well-spoken on every single topic that's come out of your mouth in the last 30 minutes? I don't know, man, I'm bullshit out my ass. <laughs> there was a moment there too when like you stopped talking and I was just like, I just want to keep listening to you talk. Like I have nothing to add at this <laughs> Wait, point. We're here just for like... your TED talk, just do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so with my background comes my story which is sad, shocker, but all these things are, right? As a lot of femme people out there, people that were assigned female at birth and were raised as a, as a girl would know, you don't even remember when it starts. I don't remember the first time somebody commented on my boobs or my body or anything like that. What I do remember is that it started out by me being stalked by an old man when I was 14 at the gym. He didn't follow me outside the gym or anything, but I would like there was a swimming pool there and I would go and I would swim and I would have a good time and I would work out and I would look at the like window and there was this guy just staring every single time. And the day I finally decided to stop going to the gym was the day that he was waiting outside the locker room for me. So I ran to my dad and I'm like going now, we're leaving. And I never went back and I really haven't swum since then. I also, I was an avid dancer. Like I said, I was raised in a really musical family. I danced for 14 years. I taught ballet, tap, all of this other shit. And I was a really, really good swing dancer. Like a giant nerd. <laughs> and it was a passion of mine. I loved it. I did it for upwards of 10 hours a week. Unfortunately, with that came the community. And this was the last time I was part of a real community before I joined the punk community. But in a lot of the venues, we weren't allowed to say no to a dance. And there were a lot of old men that would take advantage. And there was my dance teacher that took advantage. So not sunshine and rainbows. And since I left that community in 2016, I have not danced. That's a big hole in my heart. <laughs> Um, and I miss that very, very much. If I ever end up permanently moving outside of the Reading area, I might try to go back to it. But there is a lot of trauma that goes with that. Like, I was groped every week for a year and a half. I'm not really into doing that again. And then I told you about our stellar orientation weekend and our sexual assault talks. The way that ended for the women was, I challenge you. This was said to us by our um, dean. I challenge you girls to make the sexual assault number for Albright zero for the month of September. Wow. I failed that challenge 
there was a night where a friend had tried to have sex with his girlfriend. She refused. So he came to my room and I was like, oh, cool, my buddy. We're going to talk. It's 2 a.m. I've been drinking a little bit. It's going to be a great time. And then he didn't leave. Um, and I was like, you know what? He's just going to sleep there. It's fine. And then I had to fight him all four times. And then I went to report that to our public safety and to our police here in Reading and was not taken seriously. My dean basically called me a liar. Not basically. She did call me a liar. There was supposed to be a hearing for the public safety side of things for him. And I was told that I couldn't have anybody from outside the school community present for the Title IX hearing. I had been in school for a month, not even at that point. So I didn't really know anybody that well enough to be like, hey, come to me to my rape hearing, please. You know, not super into that. So I went to the dean and I'm like, hey, I'm scared. I don't want to do this anymore. Not really feeling it. I just want it to stop. Because I'm allowed to do that. And that's a lot of big emotions for a little 18-year-old. That's alone. And so the lovely dean of students brought me in with our, um, I don't know if she was like a Title IX coordinator or who she was. I just know she was a bitch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so good. <laughs> She's going to be a bitch. <laughs> I just thought she was a bitch because she sat me down and she goes, did this really happen? He's a dick. Oh, my God. Like, up yours, asshole. So I was like, yes, it did happen. I just, because of this reason, this reason, and this reason, I don't want to go through with this. So I got a letter a little bit afterwards saying, hey, we don't believe you. Cheers. Nothing's going to happen to this guy. And this is really funny because this is the guy that's now threatening my life. Holy shit. Yeah. Seven years later, here we are. Yeah. So even with that, like, the school failed me, obviously. I went to the police. You know, maybe the police will help. Fucking eight cab, right? They basically said, hey, we believe you, but the district attorney is not going to approve charges because there's no evidence because your roommate's a bitch and washed all your sheets because she knew the guy. So there's no DNA evidence or anything like that. So we'll talk to him, but we're not going to do anything about it. And I'm like, huh, OK. And then I got a call a few months later. They were like, you know what? We decided that we just don't want any repercussions against you. Like, we don't want any retaliation from him to you. We're keeping you safe. I'm like, isn't it your, like, fucking job to investigate? Yeah. Right? It happened to other people from this guy. And this guy's like, he needs help. And I think he got it for a little bit, and then he stopped getting help. And so that's why things flared up this year. So that was my first experience with rape and reporting that. So then when I was sexually assaulted by multiple other people, including a partner at the time who I was like, ah, it hurts. And he's like, power through until it started hurting him. And I'm like, I didn't say anything to him because I was like, you know what? This didn't go well last time. I still love you. This was a mistake. Blah, blah, blah. Or the person that I didn't even realize I was having sex with until 10 minutes in because I was so drunk the room was spinning. Didn't say anything to that. Slept with him four more times because I was like, I'm going to take control of the situation and this is totally healthy. Right? Because no one taught me otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. But like, so those people don't know that they sexually assaulted me because I never brought it up to them because I was so scared of the previous repercussions. And so after that first instant, I was like, this society sucks. We need to do something about it. So I flung myself into sex and gender-based violence, research, feminism, things like that. When I was in my sophomore year of college. So year one, 
shitty, terrible, no good, very bad. Ew. Year two, I was like, let's take back my life. So I took control of the narrative. I performed in the vagina monologues that year, which was super fun and also really cathartic. I did this one poem called My Short Skirt, one of my friends that had also been sexually assaulted. And I just remember standing there in a very short skirt because I love that. Shaking during it because I was just getting all of that anger and rage and injustice out as I was performing this to these people. And it was so cathartic and so amazing. And then that year I also did a Take Back the Night March, which was great. Kind of. So it started out great. It was one of the first Take Back the Night marches that included all of our colleges in the county. So we had, I think, five or six of us, like college representatives there. It was hosted on my campus. Um, I helped organize it and I spoke at it, right? I started the speak out. So I had this whole thing where I explained all of the different things that had happened to me and the steps I took and the fact that the way I was treated was really unfair. And it was a really good moment. And I made a lot of good cathartic connections with other survivors there because I don't know if you've ever attended a Take Back the Night March, but after I spoke, we passed the mic to people that have also experienced it that wanted to share. Some of them, it was the first time saying anything that had happened. I had multiple people come to me afterwards and say, hey, can I talk to you? This is what happened to me. You made me feel safe enough to actually express this. And I'm like, I love you. And that was healing for them, but also for me to see that I could make a difference. During that speak out, and this is another fucked up thing that happened to me, because traumatic backstory. During that speak out, we had asked all the mandated reporters and all the reporters, because we had a local newspaper there, to exit. The mandated reporters did, but the reporter did not. And without my consent the next day, I looked at the newspaper online. The very first sentence was, my freshman year of high school, I was raped by my friend, said Veronica DeHart, age 19, of blank college. Jesus, God. Without my fucking consent, dude. And I was like, you missed the whole ass point of this night. And so I was like, yo, <laughs> what the fuck? And I... Because they did not ensure my safety. And I wanted to see the newspaper, and I should have. But I was supposed to leave to study abroad for a year, so I was like, you know what? Last time I tried any sort of legal recourse, it fucking backfired on me, and I don't want to go through that re-traumatization again. So you know what? Fuck you. I'm moving on with my life. I traveled abroad. I actually conducted independent research as well in Morocco on the variants of feminism and women's liberation. So I had to design an independent research project, which I did with my advisor. I found a grassroots organization in Morocco. I was the only person that was not Moroccan that was working there. I worked there throughout the four months. I interviewed different women living there about what feminism means to them and what they are striving towards. And I took a gender roles in Islam course while I was there. That was also like everything that was done there was taught by a Moroccan. And I had three jobs lined up for when I graduated all internationally. Um, and then COVID hit. And COVID is not the time to graduate with a degree in international relations. <laughs> that's, the, that's just that's not it. <laughs> and it throws a whole wrench into that. A little bit of a wrench into things. So I was stuck here. And I am still not stuck here. I'm here now, continuously. And I was like, well, shit, now what do I do? So I worked as a caterer for a while. And 
that's one of the ways I actually got started with Camp Pennsylvania was they were really short staffed the first year. And I was like, hey, I'm a caterer. Do you want me to set up the hospitality writer things? I can do that. I'm a safe person. So I did that. And I impressed them. And now I'm a head bitch in charge. And that's where we're going to. <laughs> so I ended up doing catering for a while. And then I started working for an organization here in Pennsylvania for survivors of both domestic violence and sexual assault. It's a dual agency. There aren't many of those. It's lucky because we can serve everybody in our county because we're the only one here. And it's great. Um, so I started out as a community educator. Like I said, I was teaching a bunch of children how to have healthy relationships for a while. And then there were some issues where um, the, my manager that I had there, my entire team kind of left. And so I was like, I want to stay doing this work, but I don't want to be at the department. So I transferred over to medical. And medical advocacy, shocker, is very different from community educating. So I was also fortunate because when I was growing up, I would live with my sister in Alaska for the summers. And I was able to help work with her and her husband's practice. Um, she's an ER tech. He owns a medical practice. So in medical advocacy, I was the person that would respond to the emergency department or to a doctor's office immediately following an assault or an attack, be that sexual or domestic. So I was the person that would engage in crisis intervention because once that happens, your brain fucks off, right? You don't know what's going on. And I would explain what trauma in the brain look like um, or how trauma affects the brain. I would go through all of that. I would hold their hand through procedures. So. I guess to answer your question, <laughs> I have become eloquent from years of research as well as finding ways to break it down so that somebody that doesn't have a science background or doesn't have an advocacy background can understand what I'm saying. And along those lines, I actually emailed you guys about this. I am in the process of creating a few different resources. Um, I'm working on a zine series. I'm calling it Clawing Out, Overcoming Trauma, because I don't want to have like that stupid flowery live, laugh, love language that you get at a lot of places. Because trauma is not living, laughing, or loving. It fucking sucks. And we should use language that reflects that. And that is accessible to the masses and to working class people. So clawing out, because you're like clawing out of a tunnel. So I'm going to be doing a zine series. It's going to be one for survivors on different resources for like how to deal with panic attacks, how to bring yourself down, giving them those tools that I had in my toolkit to use not only on myself, but for the clients that I had as well. There's going to be one for the people that are surrounding the survivor. I'm also going to include one on different resources that somebody can go to, like RAIN, like local SADV centers. And just finding ways to make sure that people have the information that could completely change their healing journey. And I'm doing a website with it. It's going to have all the same resources and everything in it, but it's going to be online. So you don't have to like go to a show to get it. And then just doing that for survivors, for the vicarious trauma that supporters might feel, and also how to help a survivor if you're in that position. I have a section on community. So what the fuck we all need to be doing to prevent this from happening in the first place, which is what we talked about a little bit earlier, as well as just a whole thing of resources. 
So I'm just hoping that maybe it makes somebody's really, really shitty year a little bit easier. You know, even a few years ago, a lot of these conversations weren't happening. And now there's not just the conversations happening, but all of these resources are becoming available to people. And there are people like you and our friends in Michigan who did a zine and so many other people who are taking all of the information that lives in all these different places and putting them together so that the average person can easily access them in a way where they don't have to search out multiple different books or websites or anything else that it may live in. It will just exist in this one place. And I just think that's so great that this generation and now future generations will have all of this stuff right at their fingertips, whether they're involved in the punk scene or not. You bring up an interesting point that like we weren't having these conversations a couple of years ago since the Me Too movement. So I've got some uh, scary numbers if you're into talking about that. Oh, we love scary numbers. Let's go. So you remember how the Me Too movement, it was always one in three women experienced sexual violence in their lifetime? We one in two and over half. And one in three men experienced sexual violence in their lifetimes. Wasn't it one in seven or one in eight before for men? It was something like that. It was. It used to be one in six boys experienced sexual violence by the time they turn 18. It has turned into one in 13 and I'm confused by that number. I hope they're correct and it has gone down. I'm still confused because that's a big jump. Could it be because of all the stuff about the Catholic Church coming out and the Boy Scouts of America chopping that stuff down? So hopefully people are a little bit safer, but I don't know. Yeah, when we look at statistics, we want to also make sure that we're like, huh, I wonder what all of the intro, like the different things going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, also, one in four girls will experience sexual abuse by the time she turns 18. That number has stayed the same. But like you were saying before, prior to 2022, it was one in three women and one in seven men. Those rates have gone up. And I don't know if it's because we are having these conversations now. I don't know if there's retaliatory violence happening now, which is always the possibility. I think it could be a little bit of both. Either it is happening more frequently or we're having more conversations of it. I think it's both. Yeah, a little bit of people maybe not realizing before what happened to them until we start normalizing these conversations and, oh shit, that happened to me. Yeah. So I think that's also a part of the conversation we need to be having is how do we continue to have people come out about all of the different things, if that's what they want, if that's going to be something that helps them. But how do we take that information and take the fact that we're realizing that those statistics have gone up and using that to adjust our conversation around this topic to make it more inclusive. Because whenever we talk about sexual assault, we talk about violence against women. It affects us disproportionately, but it affects men. And I'm using very gendered language because that's what's in the statistics. Um, when we do look at LGBT plus communities, when we do look at communities of color, it also increases because there are hate crimes. There's also other things that go into that. And we need to recognize that when we're having these conversations as well. Trans Black women are at greatest risk for violence of any kind. 
but especially sexual violence and hate crimes. So when we're having these conversations, we need to include that information as well. And that's a community thing. We need to figure out how to, like I said earlier, minimize the violence and what that actually looks like. I did this weekend sort of seminar thing called The Call to Men, which was about race and gender and the patriarchy and its relationship to sexual violence and violence in general. And one of the things we talked about was taking care of the people in the margins of the margins. And until those people are taken care of, all of us can't be taken care of because they're the most vulnerable. They're the most targeted. So that's a big part of this whole conversation is taking care of the people who are most at risk. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to think like, it doesn't even necessarily need to be that we need to take care of them. They can take care of themselves, right? They are whole ass grown human beings. What I do think we need to do is look to them to lead if that's what they, if that's what a specific person wants. We need to look to them to lead because nobody knows their abuser. Nobody knows their oppressor as well as that survivor. And as much as we don't want to admit it, or as much as some people don't want to admit it, the three of us also contribute to that oppression. And so how could we know what they're going through if we're blind to it? So yes, you go and you support a survivor, or you go take advocacy trainings. Don't be fucking complacent. Take care of each other, love each other, maybe light some shit on fire in the metaphorical sense. Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.